0: Do you realize what is... what is There is this thing... Do, do, do you realize... Consciousness is affected... There, there is this... There is this thing... On... There is this thing going on... Do you realize... Our consciousness is affected... There is this thing
1: going on... What is called The news brought to you live... Wow. You're listening to Off the Hour, Friday edition.
2: I'm Jared Cohen.
3: I'm Nia Sirdan.
2: I'm Josh D. Makakos.
3: And I'm Olivia Jerry. CKUT broadcasts live from the unceded traditional territory of the Kanyin Kahaga, one of the founding nations of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy.
2: Here are today's stories. Olivia Jerry speaks with Foniemi from the C-R-A-R-R about sanctions against Montreal police. Footage from a panel in Ottawa discussing and contextualizing the 1969 criminal code amendments edited by myself. But first, Jared Cohen brings you an interview with Julian Feldman on school closures in the English Montreal School Board.
1: We have a great show for you today, so stay tuned. You're listening to Off the Hour, breaking all corporate and state-created sound barriers on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. To reach Montreal's Community News Collective or to get involved, call 514-448-4041 extension 6788. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
4: Welcome back to CKUT's of the hour. The time is 5.03 and here are today's headlines. La Fédération des femmes du Québec a soulevé le 16 mai 2019 les impacts du projet de loi numéro 21 sur les droits des minorités, en particulier les femmes musulmanes. La FFQ dénonce tout d'abord le projet de loi numéro 21 comme un projet de loi discriminatoire à l'égard des femmes. D'après leur site web, cela fait plus de 10 ans que la FFQ tient à une conversation sur la question de la laïcité. De 2009 à 2019, nous avons pu trouver une sortie par le haut en prenant pour grille d'analyse simple le principe « nos cœurs, nos choix », s'est exprimé la présidente de la Fédération du Québec. Dans son mémoire, la FFQ explique que ce projet a été présenté comme s'il favorisait l'égalité entre les hommes et les femmes, partant du mythe que les droits des femmes passeraient nécessairement par l'émancipation à l'égard de la religion ou que la laïcité serait la garantie de l'égalité entre les femmes et les hommes. Cependant, il est faux d'associer automatiquement religion et oppression des femmes. Ce projet de loi, loin de nous rapprocher de l'égalité entre les hommes et les femmes, ne fait que masquer, sous le couvert d'une fausse laïcité, le contrôle de nos corps et nos vies. La FFQ insiste également sur l'impact du projet de loi numéro 21 sur les femmes musulmanes et leur stigmatisation dans toutes les sphères de leur vie. En leurs mots, les femmes musulmanes portent le voile, portant le voile sont non seulement les premières cibles du débat public sur la laïcité, mais le sont également dans leur vie quotidienne. Le projet de loi met des obstacles devant les femmes musulmanes en leur refusant le droit d'occuper certains emplois si elles portent le hijab, a déclaré Gabriel Bouchard au comité qui étudie le projet de loi. L'FFQ FFQ est pour la neutralité de l'État. Mais ce projet de loi n'est pas neutre. Il est discriminatoire.
2: British Prime Minister Theresa May will resign as UK Prime Minister and the leader of the Conservative Party on June 7 after failing to get her Brexit plan through Parliament. Theresa May made the announcement in front of 10 Downing Street. In a speech delivered to the press this morning, she said, I feel as certain today as I did three years ago that in a democracy, if you give people a choice, you have a duty to implement what they decide. I have done my best to do that. I have done my best to do that. I negotiated the terms of our exit and a new relationship with our closest neighbors that protects our job security and our union. I have done everything I can to convince MPs to back that deal. Sadly, I have not been able to do so. I tried three times, but it is now clear that it is in the best interest of the country for a new prime minister to lead that effort. On May 24th, hundreds of people gathered at Federal Immigration Minister Ahmed Hussain's constituency office to deliver a petition in support of Jobandeep Singh Sandhu and to call for permanent residence status on arrival for all migrants and students. Those gathered protested against rules that limited migrants, stu- migrant students' ability to work. Jobandeep Singh Sandhu was arrested a few days before finishing his mechanical engineering uh, technician degree without a traffic with a t- traffic violation by the opp and handed over to immigration enforcement it is unclear how the opp came to know that sandhu is working more than 20 hours per week and that his permit allowed that his permit allowed at this time unless he is granted a temporary resident permit Sandu faces deportation on june 15th
3: on may 10th the tax court of canada made a historic ruling recognizing that temporary foreign workers are entitled to employment insurance benefits even if they have been working without valid permits. This comes after months of struggle from 18 Guatemalan foreign workers who were defrauded by Quebec companies who told them that they would be able to work for different employers than the one that hired them, which uh, is declared illegal. The Immigrant Workers Center joined these workers in appealing a ruling that workers would not be required employment insurance benefits, nor would they be entitled to them. Vivian Medina, an organizer with the IWC in Montreal, said that this historic decision doesn't just mean justice for this group of Guatemalan workers, but also for thousands of temporary workers for whom access to social protection and labor rights is systematically denied. We also hope that this decision, which emanates from a federal court, obliges the Minister of Public Security to recognize that measures prohibits this group of workers from returning to Canada because they they work without a work permit and are unfounded. This is ridiculous and unacceptable, says Medina. And those are today's
1: headlines. For the last few weeks on Off the Hour Friday edition, we've been covering discussions between the English Montreal School Board the EMSB, the Commission Scolaire de la Pointe de Lille, CSPI, and the Ministry of Education. This goes back to May 8th, when Minister of Education Jean-Francois Robelge gave the EMSB a month to come up with the 150 classrooms needed to address overcrowding in the CSPI. Threatened with the closure of three of its schools in St. Leonard and Montréal-Nord, the EMSB, uh, Minister of move was criticized by commissioners and parents for shirking the 18-month consultation period legally required in advance of transferring schools. Today we have an interview with Commissioner Julianne Fellman, Commissioner for Westmount, Southwest, and and... and Ville-Marie West for the EMSB. Feldman, who has criticized Minister Robertge for neglecting minority language communities in Montréal-Nord, was quoted on this topic last week on the show. He commented last week on the legality of Bill 21 and provincial overreach in English language schools in the context of Section 23 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms on minority language educational rights.
3: Here is Jared Cohen speaking with Commissioner Julien Feldman.
1: Hi, Mr. Fellman. Um, I very much appreciate you giving us your time here. Okay. So, thank you very much for joining me, Mr. Fellman. I'd like to start off by discussing the most recent developments reported by the English Montreal School Board, the EMSB, about the classrooms you've been asked to provide the Commission Scolaire de la Pointe de Lille, the CSPI. So, um this Wednesday, the EMSB unanimously voted in a new proposal that would allow cohabitation with French-language students in their existing school buildings, along with the transfer of other properties, including the previously offered Galileo Adult Educational Centre. EMSB Parent Commissioner Andrew Ross, who brought forward this plan, says the move will at least immediately provide the CSPI with 100 classrooms. So what can you tell me about this proposal?
5: Well, the, uh, uh, I, th- I think I've heard that proposal uh, referred to as the uh, enhanced proposal. So the, the one that's on the agenda uh, and that has gone through the 30-day consultation period is Galileo, which would be about 60 classrooms. Um, <clears throat> and 60 classrooms times, say, 20 kids, um, you know, that's 1,200, maybe 1,200 kids. And the CSPI say they need space for 3,000 kids. So the question is, do they really need the 3,000 spots? Or, um, you know, would, would Galileo... Um, help them, uh, because they did say that it would help them back in February, January, February. They were quite happy to uh, discuss Galileo, but politically things have changed, obviously, since then, and now they want the three schools. So, and that's where the question of uh, um, cohabitation comes up, because, you know, the, the hope of the parents and the parent commissioner, Andrew Ross, who made the proposal, is that uh, perhaps cohabitation could work on a temporary basis while CSBI makes other arrangements such as uh, building schools, that sort of thing. Uh, the The big question really is, do they want to cohabitate so that they can eventually just push the EMSB kids out? Or uh, is it even legal because there's some discussion that the courts have said that cohabitation is not legal under Section 23 of the Charter. So there there are quite a few issues uh, to be
1: discussed. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. How will the CSPI and the Ministry of Education reconcile um, their wants and needs with um, those of uh, the EMSB?
5: Uh, I don't believe they feel they, they need to. Um, what you hear, what you hear from the, the direction of the CSBI, is that our schools are full. Um, we're using every last classroom, the gym, the library. We're full to the gills, and look over there. The Anglophones have half-empty schools. So let's take them. So that's the uh, that's their position. It's pretty simple.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you believe that? Uh, Mr. Ross's um, proposal is um, is a viable alternative to the um, or the best alternative right now to the, to the minister's plan closure of the three English language schools.
5: Uh, it could be, it could be, and I say that with a little bit of caution, because um, at this point in the debate, nobody knows what is true and what is untrue. We don't know what the people's motives are. And that's why there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, We don't, for example, CSBI has refused to produce their triennial plan. A triennial plan is uh, a document that all school boards are required to uh, produce under Section 211 of the Education Act. And basically it's a list of all the schools, how many kids are in each of the schools, and the total capacity of that school. Uh, it's just a long list, and as part of the uh, as part of the document, the school board, uh, every school board in Quebec, they need also to uh, say what their plans are for the building, whether they're just going to keep the building open or whether they're going to close it for renovations or that kind of thing. But CSBI is is hiding their document, so you can see that uh, that generates a lot of distrust and suspicion.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you suspect that the conditions reported by the CSBI might have been exaggerated? Um that
5: that's possible, that's possible. I mean, if we had that triennial plan, we could we could look at the situation holistically and see if there's any logic to uh, what they're saying about the 3,000 kids. Um, you know, at the the worst-case scenario is that it's a we, we know that We know that CSPI has a lot of kids, let's make that clear. Is it 3,000? Is it exaggerated? Is it a ploy to grab the schools? Uh, We don't know.
1: Mm -hmm. I'd like to return now to the conditions under which this proposal was voted in. Uh, Minister of Education, Belge gave the EMSB an ultimatum to provide the CSPI with the spots for 3,000 students, like you mentioned, by June 10th, or risk shutting down three schools. Following the minister's decision to merge two West Island English language schools earlier this year. At that point in time, the minister invoked section 477.1.1 of the Education Act to accelerate the closure of Riverdale High School and hand it over to the Commission scolaire Marguerite Bourgeois this July. What do these forced closures mean for the Anglophone community in Montreal?
5: I, well, first of all, I think that you know the question is uh, whether the closures are legal. So there's a clash of two laws federal, one federal, one provincial. There's, as you mentioned. And on the other side, there's section 23 of the Canadian Charter, which protects um, linguistic minority schools. And so the minister says, I have the power to do this and I'm going to do it. And the school boards reply, we have protection under section 23 and we're going to, we're going to enforce it. So it's, it's kind of a, the Mexican standoff in, in a certain way. Uh, but um, um, the schools obviously are required to maintain a flourishing community. Uh, you know, the schools are the basis for a lot of um, social organizing in, in the linguistic community. And uh, we know that these values are important when these things go to court because uh, we've seen the experience of linguistic minorities, the Francophone minority in, in other provinces, and we've seen how Section 23 can be used as a very powerful and positive force. So, And the minister is aware that uh, when we go our own way, when he insists that we should not um, choose Galileo, as part of our contribution to the CSB's uh, capacity issue, when we defy the minister, we're we're also sending him a message saying that we're going to take the decisions that we're allowed to take in the interests of our school board within the law. So the minister can, can complain, but he knows that we're respecting the law.
1: Right. And uh, this decision coming from the Minister of Education comes from uh, provincial government when an expressed desire to abolish school boards. So what can we expect from now until 2020 under this government?
5: Well, the minister is following a script where he's pretending in his mind that school, bo- school boards uh, are, are already abolished. So it's, in a sense, he's, he's doing a dry run on how he would behave his school boards were no longer there. Uh, you know, he uh, in, in official correspondence, for example, he refuses to uh, address the chairman or the vice chairman for the most part. Sometimes he'll speak to them, but, you know, we've had a number of conference calls, but the letters are generally addressed to the director general as if the council of commissioners no longer exists and he's dealing with one of his many... Service centers, as they would be called under the uh, abolition scenario.
1: Mm-hmm. Were anglophone communities treated more fairly under the previous administration?
5: That's hard to say. I mean, yes, they were. It was a Liberal government, and uh, many commissioners uh, and uh, community leaders in the anglophone community have have deep connections to uh, the Liberal Party and the local MA. So, uh, yeah, for sure. But you also have to remember that it was a Liberal government. That introduced Bill 86, which was also a bill to abolish school boards. And, uh, the Anglophone school boards and the adult elected commissioners, uh, were very, very active in, uh, in eventually, uh, disappearing that bill, as it were. Uh, it never went forward. Uh, but you know, I think that what's important is to note that English school boards are truly a linguistic minority because their values and, and their perception of things are, are very much out of step with uh, the Liberal Party and, of course, the CAC. I mean, they both wanted to abolish school boards. They they believe that uh, that is uh, what the people want.
1: Mm-hmm. You earlier mentioned Section 23 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You've also mentioned Bill 21 the history textbook imposed on English school boards, the failure to call elections, the failure to hold elections concurrently with municipal votes, and the minister's desire to abolish school boards, to name a few threats to minority language educational rights. These impositions on minority language communities sacrifice Canadian legal precedent, such as Mahé versus Alberta, the 1989 uh, Supreme Court case, to a majoritarian rule. What is the broader context of these recent school closures in English language communities or communities like Montreal North?
5: If you look at uh, the broad uh swath of uh application of section twenty three in you know all ten provinces. And I actually I would say all nine provinces because Quebec has rarely uh English school boards in Quebec are are not the uh are, are uh they're a unique linguistic minority because they're English. All the rest of the linguistic minorities in Canada are uh, francophones. But I have to say that, um, Francophone school boards in other provinces and the NIHE decision that you mentioned, uh, was in Alberta. Um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, they had one or two schools. Today, I think they have 40. And that's all thank, thanks to Section 23 and the, and the lawsuits that they took against the Alberta government. So it was very, very, very productive, uh, for that community. So the Anglophone community um, has only recently come to the conclusion that they are a, a linguistic minority. Uh, I don't think there's much um, risk of assimilation, but um, the school network does create the foundation for a flourishing and vigorous uh, community. And so that's kind of, um, you know, what's at stake, but the, the Anglophone community and the school commissioners have only very rarely uh, framed their policies around Section 23. So I would say that that was a mistake, and that going forward, Section 23 needs to be addressed at every turn. So that that laundry list of uh, of items that I mentioned in the email are kind of what I'm I'm getting at. That you know whether it's a textbook. Uh, postponed election, abolition, whatever—these are all uh, these are all grist for the mill, as it were, on Section Twenty Three, and they should be pursued pretty aggressively. Each of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Finally, um, involving Section Twenty Three, um, how could we use this to bring the government to justice and hold them accountable to a population with limited ability for self-advocacy?
5: Well, I think it's uh, simple. Um, uh, we need to be, uh, scrupulous in f- following the law. Uh, so first off, that means not following the minister's dictates, which are really the, you know, murmurings of a, of a dictator in the way he speaks. Uh, we know that he, he wants to strut about the landscape, um, thinking in his mind that he succeeded, uh, at, uh, abolishing school boards i mean he hasn't actually introduced the law to do so yet but his his language and his words and his uh his bo- even his body language suggests that uh, for him it's a fait accompli um <clears throat> but you know i think that uh uh we may have to go to court soon it may not be on abolition it may be over those three schools and uh, um um you know, there are other other issues that we could also go to court on the failure to call elections, which really happened under the Liberals, uh, but it's something that apparently will be maintained under CAC. Um, there's the textbook. The textbook is kind of a farce, uh, but look, English school boards uh, have a right to their own text. It shouldn't be a, a crude translation of uh, one that's imposed by the Minister of Education. Uh, I think Bill 21 is another example where uh, if it's not the school boards that are going to court, we need to adopt positions that allow other groups to take this uh, fight into the courts. And, you know, realizing, however, that CAC, uh, they want to fight. They want to fight because what they really want is to show their base that they're taking it to these minorities. Uh, that's part of the The new value system in Quebec, unfortunately. So it's, it's, it's kind of like dog whistling on steroids. Uh, but, you know, um, we still live in a rule of law, a rule of law society. So we can, uh, we can go to court and then go to court on very basic, uh, principles. And in a lot of these cases, I think that we have strong cases and will likely win. So a loss for the government. Would be difficult, I think, for them to digest. And uh, whether it's abolition schools or Bill Twenty One, uh, a loss in court could could damage uh, those those laws pretty profoundly. I think.
1: Where can kind our of listeners follow your efforts and other representatives of the EMSB? Well, uh, when when we're in session,
5: which is uh, you know several times a month, uh, oftentimes uh, it is webcasted. Uh, we have a very open Democracy, there's a lot of debate, uh, I would say it's kind of like a Greek parliament, very noisy, but uh, I think very vigorous and, uh, very honest and open. Uh, so you can go to the EMSB website and, uh, find out when those things are happening. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening on Facebook with, uh, a lot of people arguing, arguing and debating the issues. Um, you know, and also of course, uh, in other media.
1: We'll be sure to continue covering the story as it develops. Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Feldman.
5: Well, thank you for having me.
2: Once again, that was Jared Cohen speaking with EMSB Westmount Commissioner Julian Feldman. You're listening to CKUT 90.3 FM. The time is 525. We're going to play a quick song, but don't go anywhere because we'll be right back. Welcome back. You just heard Agolo by Angelique Quijot. Uh, At the end of April, uh, Carleton University held a conference uh, against uh, the Bill 69, or sorry, not Bill 69, um, the uh, 1969 Criminal Code Reforms. The conference joined more than 120 participants and 38 speakers to provide a forum for scholarly and activist work of the mythologies and limitations of the 1969 Criminal Code Reforms. The Anti-69 campaign argues that the federal government has planned and funded several efforts to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the decriminalization of homosexuality when in fact no such decriminalization has taken place, and those efforts at commemoration only serve to perpetuate the myth. According to the Anti-69 website, in 1969, Clause 7 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act, also known as the Omnibus Bill, reformed two provisions, buggery and gross indecency. Nonetheless, they were not repealed. The bill added an exception clause that allowed individuals to commit these crimes under certain circumstances, between two adults aged 21 or older, and in a strict definition of private. The majority of those charged with homosexuality were charged after the 1969 reforms, a fact that demonstrates the clear hypocrisy in the current government's PR campaign.
6: Hi, my name is, uh, my name is Christo. Um, as was noted, I'm a historian whose uh, doctoral research kind of focused in on, on Pierre Trudeau Largely his relationships with organized labor and the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation slash New Democratic Party. Um, So, Gary was kind enough to invite me to come and uh, speak a little bit about those connections that, you know, some direct and some indirect ways really tie in to the various events happening in 1969. And, you know, Trudeau's really interesting in this regard because he has this like long ideological transformation. In his youth, Trudeau is rather, uh, rather nationalistic, um, up until he goes off to uh, university abroad, he goes to study at Harvard, uh, spends brief time in Paris before starting but not finishing a doctorate at the London School of Economics. But before all of this, he's, um, he's sympathetic to a kind of corporatist nationalism in Quebec, which is, you know at the very least, fascist, sympathetic, uh, deeply unambiguously anti-Semitic um, and, and questions um, you know, Canadian, the Canadian state in, in, in a kind of conservative direction. Um, for instance, uh, it's part of this community that if you go to the Notre Dame in Montreal still, there is an uh, image of Mussolini on the stained glass murals there, uh, symbolizing his importance to many Catholic populations in and around the time. Less sympathy for Hitler, let's say, but more for Franco and Mussolini, who were defenders of the Catholic faith, or at least perceived as such. But by the time he goes off in, into his young adulthood, he really starts to embrace, you know, a small L liberalism, and he comes back to Canada. And this has been interpreted as a socialism, given who he associates with. But my interpretation and my research and my interpretation kind of in this talk, is that Trudeau kind of embodies this small L liberalism, which associates him with the left because at the time, even in its limited capacity, the Liberal Party was the party of Japanese internment. The Liberal Party was the party of, of uh, if not enacting Duplessis' padlock act, then doing nothing to oppose it. You know, It was the party that continued to deny the right to strike and bargain collectively in many cases. So Trudeau, the kind of small L liberal, looked to people like the CCF, and look to um, labor leaders uh, and labor trade unionists uh, as early allies in that liberal project to "quote unquote" bring liberalism to Quebec. Now, of course, Maurice Duplessis was a liberal um, because often, as as many liberals are wont to do, they associate um, you know small l liberalism with the good things of liberalism, you know, the liberty and what have you, uh, so much as that is probably non-existent. But they they just the, you know the point is with Duplessis, he was dedicated first and foremost to the primacy of private property, which is the core aspect of, of liberalism. But um, Trudeau in that period forms this really strong relationship with organized labor. Um, and this is why a lot of people, and you've probably heard this, see Trudeau as you know, a, a secret communist, you've heard this notion, or, or more accurately from a lot of mainstream liberal people who have done most of the scholarly work on Trudeau, is that he was you know, a kind of pragmatic social democrat who realized that the only way to make change in this country is through the Liberal Party, so he went to the Liberal Party and he, and he made that change, and he is the father of all that is good with modern Canada, whether that's the Charter of Rights and Freedoms or whether that's the 1969 decriminalizations or whether that's, you know, the rise of of capital M multiculturalism, and there's other factors as well, on that Trudeau is the kind of progenitor of this modern progressive Canada. And so this conference really ties into my research, at least in part in challenging Trudeau's role in that. And rather, in in my research, I focus on more of the kind of pure economic questions around trade union rights, politics of, of, energy ownership and, and, and distribution and things like that, to argue that Trudeau is rather the, the progenitor of neoliberalism in Canada. And it doesn't start with Mulroney or Chrétien or Martin, and it starts with Pierre Trudeau. And in a sense, the just society is this interesting phenomenon because it really is this notion that people read as a tabula rasa, as this blank slate, and they sort of imposed what they wanted on it. It was written by uh, Ramsey Cook, famous Canadian historian, who was... Um, before his uh, allegiances to Trudeau, he was a, uh, a member of the of the NDP, uh, and he would write that Just Society speech for Pierre Trudeau. And many people assumed, and I think reasonably so, that it was a nod to greater economic equality, uh, greater equality between the 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 many and the few, if you will. In addition to all these other forms of of hopes people pinned on it, whether it was gender equality, whether it was you know. Uh, equality between French and English Canadians or what have you, equality between, you know, the French, like the Franco-Anglo old stock and the, and the wave of new European immigrants who are relatively recent. These were all the kind of hopes that people pinned on it. But at the end of the day, for workers at least, it was, it was kind of a red herring. And what typified Trudeau's kind of general approach, if I can distill it down, it was one, a resistance to kind of collective rights, which, which Gary talked about in his introduction, Um, And two, it was his deep concern about expectations. Both in public and in private, Trudeau feared one thing above all, and that was regular people having high expectations, Uh, specifically in economic terms, and and to a certain degree in social terms. He was worried that the post-war period had given the average working man and working woman too great a, a hope for the future that they, their wages would continue to be strong, that they would have good social programs, um, that there would be continuing levels of relative equality. As we know, there were still deep inequalities in the early post-war period, but as, as far as the, you know, the aggregate between, say, the top 10 and bottom 10% of income holders, we've never gotten to that level of equality again in modern capitalist society as we were in Canada and the United States in that brief 30-year window. Trudeau didn't want that to continue. So from his earliest days in power, even before you know, the No War Measures Act, Trudeau would give interviews about how, you know, we have to stop this keeping up with the Joneses thing. Trudeau, of course, was a, a personal millionaire in of himself, the, 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 excuse me, the hypocrisy reeked off this man all the time, right? Um, that this idea that regular people, they, they, they shouldn't expect good social programs. The government shouldn't be a Santa Claus to them, sound, sounding like a Fox News kind of commentator, you know, regular people just want the government to give them free stuff and, and things like this. Of course, these things paid for by taxes largely levied from working and middle-class people. And so in this sense, he kind of created this notion of, of expectations, and this was intertwined with the crisis of inflation that was kind of ravaging the Western you know, capitalist nations in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And he used this to justify what, you, what would be called wage and price controls. Um, that would basically uh, limit the right of workers in unionized environments from bargaining collectively uh, to the fullest extent. Basically, a deep kind of restriction on the right to bargain collectively and the right to strike. And while there were price controls, they were almost universally ineffective. but wage controls were actually quite effective. So the effect of wage controls, at first kind of in a semi-voluntary program in the early 60s or early 70s, known as the Price and Incomes Commission, Uh, And then eventually in wage and price controls in the uh, mid-1970s, maybe many of you know, is anybody here at the 1976 protest? No? There was one million workers that went on a one-day strike in 1976 to protest those controls. Um, So, you know, it was one of the biggest, the biggest one-day strike in Canadian history by far. Um, And then in the early 1980s, specifically on federal public servants, the six and five anti-inflation program which capped wages for federal public servants. In none of these cases were the controls on, on capital effective on their price, their ability to price goods, but always very effective on the ability to control workers' wages. And again, this was couched in the need to fight inflation, but if you read the kind of Trudeau's philosophical rants, and if you read the, the, the internal policies of the government, it was really predicated, this, this notion of what Trudeau saw as a just society, was about challenging The greed of regular people. Regular people through their unions were greedy. They were greedy because they demanded high wages. They were greedy because they demanded good schools and social programs. And he said that we have to stop this. We have to use the force of the state. Sometimes the force of law. Other times, as we, you know, the force of of, of direct state violence. Trudeau would say that, you know, he would kind of threaten to bludgeon workers if they if they continued to protest him. making Doug Ford probably blush with the rhetoric, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, The reality is that in all of these cases, the goal was clear, you have to break down workers' hope for the future because that is driving inflation. Now, while this is happening, there wasn't a necessary effort to kind of control, you know, workers um, or the, the expectations of the wealthy. Trudeau, of course, had a very fancy pool installed at 24 Sussex Drive. During these debates, um, Trudeau would you know continue to talk about the need to free the free people from tradition. And this could be construed, I think, and, and, and during my original research, frankly, I didn't see this given my own cultural blindness, the, the traditions of, of, of indigenous people, but he, I think he means all forms of traditions uh, that hold back the truly great, almost an Ubermensch kind of idea that the liberal read kind of like white, straight, male educated, you know, individual is held back, be it by stultifying Christianity, or by the indigenous cultures of the land, or by things like community, or by trade unions, which bring a measure of equality and, you know, to, to workplaces. And there's this idea that you have to free yourself from this, so greed is good, Gordon Gecko is right, but not when greed comes from the masses of people. Greed is good when it comes from the liberated individual. And even if you want to look at the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms now...
3: uh, Once again, that was audio from the Anti 69 conference at Carleton University. The time is 5.42. You're listening to Off the Hour Friday edition on CKUT 90.3 FM. On May 9th, the Center for Research Action on Race Relations succeeded in advocating on behalf of a victim of police brutality, culminating in the Police Ethics Committee's decision to suspend the offending officer. In t- 2012, Khalid El Eldaba was stopped for driving across a solid white line. The SPVM forced him to pay an unwarranted security deposit for past tickets due to concerns that Mr. Eldaba might go back to Alberta, where he resides, and not pay the fine. The KRAR advocated for Mr. El Eldaba and pushed his case uh, to, into the courts, initially rejected by the police ethics commissioner. This, this was after seven long years in the courts, mind you. Because of these uh, efforts, the complaint eventually led to disciplinary measures issued against the offending officer Sanjay Vig, two days without pay. This pales in comparison to the discrimination Mr. Aldaba faced for an ostensibly minor driving infraction. Our listeners might recall CKUT reporting from the March Against Police Brutality, organized by the Coalition Opposée à la Brutalité policière or COBP, on March 15th. This took place shortly after a report on Giuliano Gray, who was brutalized by STM officers and was later represented by the CROW as well.
1: Olivia Jerry spoke to Phonemi from the Center for Research Action on Race Relations um, about Mr. Eldaba's complaint and other cases like his.
3: So um, I'm calling you today about the Mm -hmm. uh, Montreal police officer who was sanctioned for an illegal arrest that he made and an inappropriate use of force on an Arab driver, Mm -hmm. um, Khalid Eldaba. The Center for Research Action on Race Relations helped Mr. Uh, Eldaba with his case. Right. And, um, I'd just like to know if you can discuss the details of this complaint levied against Officer Sanjay Vig, the police officer with the Service de Police de la Ville de Montréal for committing three breaches of the Code of Ethics of Quebec police officers.
0: Well, it's an incident that, that dated back for, uh, in 19, on, uh, 2012, in July 2012, mm-hmm. uh, many years ago, uh, in, at which, uh, the Monsieur de was, basically, was so driving near the Rockland, uh, um, area. Kremazy, Acadie, that area, yeah. and basically he just came back from Alberta. He moved back here to Quebec to Le Cic, um where he was from originally, in order to deal with with his illness, his back injury. So he had some uh, confusion driving the road because there was all kinds of construction. So he basically he, he got stopped by this police officer, uh, who basically uh, did ID check on him and saw that he has all these Alberta cards driver's license and medical card so uh he the officer wanted to give him a fine for um the highway traffic offense um and ask him to make a deposit because the officer thought that he were being from Alberta, he would go back and would not pay the fine okay there was some sort of the back and forth discussion that ensued and finally, uh, the officer called for backup for his colleague further down the street to come. Both of them remove Mr. Elderback from his car forcefully, uh, despite the fact he was that we're saying to the bad back, be careful, um, because it can create a worse injury. But they didn't listen to that. Basically, they rough him up and they took him back to the police station. They really, um, and they searched him and they did not give him his back peel, uh, pain for appeals uh, for his back pain. And eventually he ended up with um, uh, 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 several fines. Um, uh, some fines were dismissed by the court uh, afterwards, but okay. he still had to pay some of the fines. So we held, basically felt it was a case that I was a simple hire traffic offense. But why there was so much force used? Why such an escalation? Um so we helped him file a complaint with the Police Ethics Commissioner. At first the complaint was rejected because the Commissioner at the time at first didn't see anything wrong with it. We had to file an appeal. So the, the uh, tribunal ordered the Commissioner to review the, uh, the complaint and finally uh, the case was brought forward for uh, police, um with the Police Ethics Committee for sanction. And this is why in, in, in uh, 2019, we have those uh, the decision with the sanction on the officer for uh, making, um, you know, among other things, errors in interpreting the, the law with regard to making deposit for a high traffic fine and also with illegal arrest and also the use of force. Unfortunately, some of these things uh, take a long time and that's why we will always tell people that when you deal with uh, complaints against the police, uh, whether it be uh, under the Charter for Discrimination or under the Code of Police Ethics for misconduct. Conduct. It takes time uh, because of the you know, so many factors. An officer can be on vacation. Uh, um, you know, there may be the, you, you may get turned down. You have to file for an appeal, and then the case will continue. Uh, it's it's not that easy. Uh, one has to be very patient and also know the the workings of the legal system in order to go as far as possible. And this is maybe one reason why many people don't uh, file complaints or are not successful in filing the complaints because it has to be, basically people need to know more about the law, um, particularly dealing with the police misconduct.
7: Okay.
3: Mm-hmm. Um so your uh, your organization was uh, in fact successful in pushing this case forward and uh, and that's wonderful we uh, we always uh, you know look to the the car, to the the kind of advocacy that they do mm-hmm. but uh, what can the SPVM do in response to numerous allegations of targeted police brutality against visible minorities to sensitize and train officers to put an end to this kind of behavior
0: well, the, the, what it does in terms of training and other detection and prevention measures, honestly, we don't know. Because for years we have heard about training, we have heard about sensitivity sessions, uh, but we'll still see the conduct at the front line against ordinary people, whether they be, be young people, even white people, young people of color, older people of color. We see the uh, a pattern of excessive use of force, a, a pattern of lack of courtesy, a pattern of escalation where there should be de-escalation during the police intervention. And we also see more disturbing practices such as, uh, um, you know, uh, driving while black traffic stops, yeah. um, racial profiling, all these things put together shows as a pattern that reflects among the things a, an organizational culture that needs to be changed substantially, and without that change, uh, just officer training alone may not be adequate. Because why? Because sometimes these officers have developed bias or questionable attitudes or practices even before they became and become police officers, especially when they have to go through uh, college training and the training in the police academy. You know, So they, they, there needs to be something more much in-depth in terms of about changing not only behaviors and practices, but also changing the mindset and the organizational culture.
3: So perhaps this is a problem that goes all the way down to the roots um, during these young officers' training in CEJEP and at Nicolet, the police academy in uh, Quebec?
0: Uh, precisely. You know, in the 90s, there was so much emphasis on community-based policing, uh in which uh, police-community relations were the, often the driving force in, in many police departments. 9-11 mm-hmm. changed that. 9-11 made police into a quasi-public, the national security law enforcement agency. And then we noticed that 2012, the student spring demonstration, we noticed a certain rupture from the past, a certain break from the past, and certain tendency to use force with greater quasi-military equipments on young students, so we feel that perhaps over the period of almost two decades community based policing has been replaced by the quasi military police intervention in which uh technologies and uh, weapons uh supersede more basic human intervention and uh, community relations skills as a way to achieve how shall we say more effective policing
7: mm-hmm.
0: and that's something that we need to, I think we need to pay attention to is because of the advent of technology such as taser um and uh, other uh, weapons uh, there there may be greater greater trends towards uh escalation and use of force as opposed to using uh communication skills and reasoning skills as a way to resolve a situation differently
3: absolutely and at the karar have um have you in your work uh noticed that the rapid militarization and restructuring of police forces Um, and that stray from uh, community-oriented civil service work, um, has that militarization disproportionately affected people of color, people who live in communities that are more heavily policed, um, poor Montrealers?
0: Mm. Well, we've seen that uh, many people who have been shot to death in the recent years in Montreal tend to be people who have mental health issues. Uh, okay. some people were men of color. Some people were white men who were, uh, homeless. Um, so that's also poverty related, uh, factors. Uh, so those are the things that I think we need to keep a global view on. And one, uh, area that is not often mentioned is that it's not just not the police department alone, but also the entire criminal justice system. For example, we have right now many cases before the Human Rights Tribunal against Montreal Police for racial profiling. Um, okay. Since 2016, the entire justice system in this province has been moving towards mediation as a cheap, effective, and a more constructive way of resolving conflicts. The Montreal Police has consistently refused mediation in human rights cases wait until they go to court and when they go to court before the human rights tribunal it's basically endless procedural tactics in order to have the case thrown out and to avoid the case examined on the merits. So these are practices of the city and um, the uh, justice system that also contribute to sending a message. That it's okay for officers to discriminate, profile, or to use excessive force because once these cases go to court, very likely the citizens will either be drop out or they'll be, um, uh, the case will be thrown out uh, over time or they don't even have the means to continue. Uh, so we need to look at these issues from a more broader criminal justice uh, perspective.
3: Okay. And um, I'd like to move on to civil disobedience, because you mentioned the um, student riots of 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, two months ago in Montreal, we saw the March Against Police Brutality mm-hmm. in the month of March, organized uh, by the coalition, coalition Opposée à la Brutalité Policiale. Mm-hmm.
0: The cops, yes. Yep.
3: Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, this was in a broader context of abuse and lack of oversight, as you've pointed to, among officers in the SPVM and the STM can you tell me about the stm and its chair uh, philip schnob's response and how the Qur evaluates it
0: well, we, uh, represent and assist uh, Juliano Gray, the young black man who was beaten by the metro inspectors at Villa Maria Station in March 27, uh, 2019. So we, uh, of course, we, uh, we, we have to be very sort of clearly in a position to defend and assist him.
7: Mm-hmm. What
0: we can say is that the whole system of the metro inspectors, um, and the so-called the enforcement system in the subway station by the STM, Raises a lot of doubts as to their uh, ability to handle public complaints effectively, independently, and with impartiality. And there's no uh, transparency. There's no accountability. And then uh, it's, the issue is, um, uh, it's like an institutional uh, way of trying to uh, silence uh, people who want to complain. Um, this is why we we think that the issue is just beyond the use of force and abuse of power at the front line vis-a-vis a metro rider. But it comes down to the organizational culture of uh, respecting the matter of things, public transparency and accountability when an issue of this nature arises, and there are fundamental questions of law being raised uh, with regard to what happened.
3: Okay. Um and you mentioned Giuliano Grey in um mm-hmm. in the month of March March 6 precisely uh Mr oh. Grey was apprehended by that that ST, those STM inspectors mm-hmm. in Namur metro
0: yeah, No it was at the Villa Maria Villa Maria metro. sorry yeah
3: Um and since then uh he he lost his job he was suffering from a a very serious physical PTSD, injuries Yes
0: yeah. and physical harm yeah
3: And um and and you know everybody saw that that video uh, online, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. this was a truly unjust use of force. Um, can you tell us a little bit, since the Quar is uh, advocating for Mr. Gray, uh, mm-hmm. how he's doing now, um, what his experience was like with, with um, you know, getting this, this legal dossier treated, um, and, and how he was treated more specifically by the tribunal?
0: Okay. Right now his case is still at the investigation stage. We help him press criminal charges against the inspectors. The inspectors also press charges against him for assault. So we have a situation the police uh, has two opposing charges against the same party. So it's trying to look into that. Uh, so we, we have to monitor it very closely. At the same time, we have worked with city councillors and other organizations to push for an internal independent inquiry into the incident because we cannot trust the SCM system of internal review or investigation because nobody knows what it is or what it consists of. Uh, we're also looking at filing a civil claim against the uh of the inspector, the SCM mm-hmm. and its chair personally because we believe in accountability of the chief executive officer or the chair of the board uh, when it comes to issues of among other things excessive use of force and violation of uh, constitutional rights by citizens. We're looking into it right now, and we're looking at because pretty much of what is to be done depends on whether criminal charges will be laid between the parties and how that would unfold before the criminal justice system.
3: In a statement in March, the CRAR expressed support mm-hmm. for the request of Montreal City Councilor Mar- mm. Marvin, Marvin Rotran yeah. to ask uh, Mayor Valérie Plante to launch an inquiry into Mr. Gray's mm-hmm. assault. Mm-hmm. What can we hope? It's, it's been a few months since then. What can we hope the City of Montreal will make out of this request?
0: Well, the City of Montreal has to really stand up to its uh, commitment to combat, among other things, systemic discrimination and racism. Uh, unfortunately, in this case, it dropped the ball. It quickly sided with the chair of the SCM by saying that the uh, whatever the SCM did in terms of review and investigation and the officers' conduct, everything was done according to the protocol and by the book. Uh, but neither the city nor the SCM revealed what the protocol is or what the book is and uh... what the rules are so we believe that the uh, the city of montreal is also participate in this effort of trying to hush hush what's uh, this is a, a terrible incident that cannot be accepted in twenty nineteen in a city like montreal because mr Gray could have been killed he was clearly a target of excessive and abusive force uh... but for public authorities to say that that's okay and it's done by the books and we we have you know, uh, basically, um, uh, we need to know what the book uh, is. You know, the book of law, and uh, so who should be th- uh, the book should be thrown at, uh, uh, because obviously there are very serious questions that will be answered eventually in a legal forum of some kind.
3: Absolutely. Mm. So, lastly, um, what can our listeners do to support the efforts of the CRAR in its fight for justice um, against police brutality? Um, and support uh, victims that are, you know, being advocated for by the Quran?
0: Yeah, you know, the first thing that every listener or every Montrealer should do is not to take the no for an answer when they see abusive conduct on a police officer or in a person in a law enforcement position. They have to report it. They have to stand up against it. And if they are a target of these. Abuse of practice.
1: once again that was olivia jerry speaking with phone Nime from the crar that will conclude this Friday's edition of off the hour
3: for more information on our programming or if you would like to support news produced by and for the montreal community please contact ckut's community, community news on. department at 514-448-4041 extension 6788 or news at ckut.ca also, you can follow us on Instagram at CKUTNA news or connect with us on Facebook, search Off The Hour. Stay tuned for CAFE coming up next.